Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, and I'm co-host of this channel. Now, we're pretty familiar with the history of the division of Vietnam in 1954 into two states, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, or DRV in the north, and the Republic of Vietnam, or RVN, in the south. What started out essentially as a civil war turned into one of the bloodiest conflicts of the Cold War. Much of the scholarly and indeed popular interest in the history of this period has focused on the bitter and divisive American experience of the war. But beyond the military conflict, we're much less familiar with the everyday lives of the youth in the two opposing states. Making two Vietnams, War and Youth Identities, 1965 to 1975, is a rich and fascinating study of how the youth in these two Vietnamese states experienced this tumultuous period in very different ways. Today I'm talking to the book's author, Olga Draw. Olga is Professor of History at Texas A&M University and is currently a research fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Nantes, France, from where I speak to her. Olga, thank you so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm very happy to be here and talk uh, with you and uh, with the listeners and share my experience about the book and uh, about Vietnam. Now, you have a fascinating backstory before you came to Southeast Asian history, Your family background is from Leningrad. You grew up in the Soviet Union. Can you tell us how, from there, how you became interested in the history of Vietnam? To tell you the truth, it was absolutely by chance because I grew up, as you said, in Leningrad in the Soviet Union. And uh, I studied at the school uh, with uh, an enhanced program in English and we studied a little bit of French literature and other Western cultures. So by the ripe age of 18, I decided that I knew everything that was to know about the West. And actually, I didn't know what to do with myself. I really wanted to be a pilot, but they didn't take girls to study, to prepare them to become pilots. So I found the second best. Uh, For me, it was the School of Oriental Studies, and mainly I chose it because it said that they give preference to boys over girls, and I thought that it's as challenging as a pilot school, perhaps. And I thought that I knew everything about the West. So I decided to go to apply there, and I applied... to study Japan. And when I took the exams, the committee told me that I had a choice of uh, uh, the Akkadian language or to study Indonesia or to study Vietnam. 
the Soviet Union didn't have any relationship with Indonesia, so I couldn't really practice it. And Vietnam, the second language was Chinese, and the third was French. So I decided to give it a try, and I had two professors who taught us very carefully and with great enthusiasm, and they taught me to learn about this country and to love this country and its history and its culture. And I got my master's degree from the university, from the School of Oriental Studies of Leningrad State University. I also was a simultaneous interpreter. I worked for some time for the Radio of Moscow, transmitting to Vietnam. But it was impossible for me to find a permanent job because of anti-Semitism, especially in the field of any international relations in the Soviet Union at that time. The only place that I could get in was uh, the Institute of Linguistics, the director of which decided to take me after quite a number of places uh, rejected me outright on the basis of uh, my nationality. The only problem was that I really didn't like linguistics that much. So as soon as the Iron Curtain went up, I immigrated to Israel. And there I wanted to try to continue to study Vietnam. So I came to Hebrew University in Jerusalem and uh, said I, I was like a month in Israel. And they said, maybe you would like to study international relations. And I said, sure. And I started uh, studying international relations. And then in in two years, when the Soviet, after the Soviet Union collapsed, and Israel also had this idea that the relationship with many Arab countries would be established, improving the embassies would be established there, they announced competition for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to fill out position because when the Soviet Union collapsed at, at, uh, at the same moment, instead of one country, the Soviet Union, there became 15 countries. So not each former republic would have its own Israeli embassy. But when I got into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I was assigned to go to the Baltic states. And I was consul of Israel there for two years from 1994 to 1996. And by that time, I already figured out that I had to take the GRE test that I have First of all, to find which university would agree to take me in, that I had to write letters. So I did all this and I got accepted at Cornell. And in 1997, I came to work there on my PhD. That's a, that's a remarkable story. One of the themes uh, that runs through the book, which kind of provides a, f- a framework for understanding the experiences of growing up in the in the RVN, is the diversity of southern Vietnam in terms of ethnicity, religion, and even class. And this diversity, you write, had existed long before the political division in 1954. Could you tell us how this history of diversity in the South affected the experience Absolutely. of the Absolutely. So the war was about different visions of the future. While the North has a very clear idea what they wanted, they wanted two things, to unite the country, and the second thing, to unite the country under their authority. So it was not a question, let's unite the country and we will talk about how we, what authority we will have for, for both parts. It was, we will be the authority, socialism and then communism will be the ideology. And it was very clear. In a sense, it's very convenient to have such a straightforward ideology. The South, they were anti-communist. What did it mean for them? If the North could impose its authority, and it did impose their authority, and subdued any dissent, and they could afford make it because it was an authoritative state, the South couldn't do it. 
because then the very reason for their existence would be obliterated because they were anti-authoritarian. They were anti-communist. This is what they were fighting for. They didn't want to become dictatorship as the North was. Well, were they a democracy as we know or as we must know? Democracy does not uh, grow up in one day or in one night, even though very often some countries and the United States is in the forefront of this thing that democracy can be established basically overnight. It's not the case. Uh, Vietnam never had a history of democracy. So it was something very, very new to them. However, they were doing what I think their best uh, under the circumstances. They were learning how to be more democratic. And what is the result of this? If you allow any democracy, to whatever extent, you have to allow dissent. And when you allow dissent, people have different opinions that they can express. And then they can go to demonstrations, they can disagree with the government, they can undermine the government's agenda. This is what democracy is about, and this is finally what what South Vietnam was fighting for and what the United States supported in their ally. So with this, definitely there were different opinions in South Vietnamese society. And the society had to exist in much greater diversity. The result of it was that the same school children of those who were pro-communist or even communist or anti-communist or religious people, Buddhists or Christians or Kaudai or different other religious currents, they would be together. So it was difficult, very difficult for the government to maintain some functionality of the society and at the same time to propagate their political line. So what they choose, they choose basically not to teach politics at school. And at school, uh, children did not talk about the war. And from my conversations uh, with uh, the Vietnamese who were growing up back then, they didn't, at home, families didn't talk about it either. First of all, because they did not want to jeopardize to that their children would do something wrong. Second, a lot of families were divided and they fought on the different sides of the conflict. And this is what made the society so different because of its diversity and because of their acceptance of this diversity. They tried not to politicize their youth the way the North did. And they could not. They just simply could not do that because they otherwise they would have turned into North Vietnam, into authoritarian state. And my personal opinion is that any authoritarian state is at the time of war is much more effective than a non-authoritarian state. North Vietnam was a monolith. Uh, South Vietnam was a diverse society with its conflicts. And I asked young people who were young back then when they would they when they were growing up and would uh, go to high school to university some of them would start participating in demonstrations for example against the war against americans and this is completely understandable because it's such a prolonged conflict who, who would like to live in a wartime time society but uh, i asked them uh, what was their Goal. I mean, if Americans leave, if the war stops, what did they expect? Because a lot of those people, they live now abroad in diaspora. They said that they did not really think through 
what the result would be, but they wanted to exercise this freedom. They wanted to exercise their right. They wanted to celebrate their diversity. They wanted to stand for what they thought wrong. What are the examples of that authoritarian nature of the North, which comes through the education system, which you write about in the book, was how their education system tries to instill amongst its youth a hatred of the enemy, whether it's the Americans or the you know the so-called puppets in the South. But you write that there was no similar attempt in the RVN's uh, education system in the South to instill a hatred for the communists in the North. So why, this, why was there, this was different, why was different exactly here? because of the diversity of the society, uh, because there were people who were allowed to have different views, because the government just could not afford to become the same authoritarian government. In the North, it was not allowed not only to question the war, but to write anything that is pessimistic about the war. One of the writers wrote a short children's story in a newspaper, and he described there his story that his wife died and he was very sad. His son was fighting in the South for many years. So he was alone and he befriended kids from the school. And still there was this sadness. This person could not publish anything for 20 years because he was accused of making the war look pessimistic while it always had to be a heroic effort of uh, the entire nation, the entire nation, the North and the South, regardless whether the Southerners uh, wanted the North to be victorious or not. Also, because in the North, the school system was a uniform system. They all studied, they all used the same sources, uh, they all used the same textbooks, which they could print in just mind-boggling numbers, uh, the books were printed in could be printed in hundred thousand copies. This is even for our time in the West, it's an enormous number of copies. But it was the state that was paying for everything. So the liter- literature that was created, it was also very politicized. It didn't have to draw uh, people in so that they would by the books the way it the situation was in the south there there because of the diversity of the society because there were religious school and public school and private schools and you know different different denominations and different groups they all had their own textbooks literature had very difficult time, especially for children, because parents wouldn't buy expensive books for children. So it was very difficult to publish new books, and the state subsidized very, very little. So it was a problem to attract, to write better literature, or to write literature that would catch attention of the children and their parents, because it was commercial, and because it was important for those publishing houses to survive. So it was much more difficult in the South this way. The North having this uh, propagandizing uh, methods of enemy uh, hatred and at the same time love of Ho Chi Minh, who was the leader of the country, uh, they created a very strong framework of love, hatred, mobilization for young people because it was clear and it was always pointed that Americans are terrible, that those who collaborate with Americans, they are puppets and lackeys, and that there were a lot of cartoons in the textbooks and in newspapers depicting killing Americans and South Vietnamese puppets. And uh, there were riddles, how many Americans did uh, someone kill yesterday if tomorrow he will kill three more. So there were a lot of math uh, problems about killing and uh, squashing with tanks and torturing. 
it had also perhaps opposite effect because a lot of children in the north they could not really concentrate on studying because there was this heroic life out there and uh, south vietnamese children were participating very actively as the north reported to north vietnamese children in the fight and they were publishing accounts uh, that some boy at the age of 12 he reported that he killed 250 americans and uh, hopes to kill even more next year but in the north the children uh, thought you know we're sitting here doing nothing while great things are happening there so they had a lot of problems with studying it's not that the north did not employ young north vietnamese to go to the south they don't really reveal this publicly you cannot get in their archives but it is known that there were people at the age of 16 17 who would join already fighting forces but it was actually very interesting in the south because even though the democratic republic of vietnam and even now the socialist republic of vietnam they present the communist movement in south vietnam that in the united states some sometimes is called the viet cong and so it was called in uh, south vietnam too vietnamese communists and those who supported him as a grassroots movement. In reality, it was not a grassroots movement. It was directed by North Vietnam. So much so that even the, the educational system was directed by North Vietnam. It was directed from Hanoi. And I found materials in Hanoi that were discussing the situation in South Vietnam in the areas controlled by Vietnamese communists in South Vietnam, by uh, communist guerrillas, because they had schools there up to grade six. So what to do after grade six? It's a problem because on the one hand, if we don't do anything, if we don't extend our schools to higher grades, then some parents might send their children to the enemy schools. But if we do, then instead of fighting, some children might go to school. So they definitely encourage young uh, children as young as the age of 12, 13, 14 to go and fight. And this is their preference, that they would go to fight instead of going to school. And it was not the case with South Vietnam because they were trying to give their young ones, I can't say normal childhood because the country was at war, but some semblance of apolitical childhood to a much greater extent, definitely, than the North Vietnamese society. At this point, we need to pause for a break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, I'd like to discuss a little more the ideological elements of the education systems of the two Vietnamese states. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Olga Draw about her new book, Making Two Vietnams, War and Youth Identities, 1965-1975. to You write that one of the centrepieces of North Vietnamese propaganda that targeted the youth was the personality cult surrounding Ho Chi Minh, which Ho himself supported. You write that, and I quote, love for Ho Chi Minh became the foundation and pillar of children's socialisation. And to a certain extent, of course, this personality cult continues in Vietnam today. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Thank you. It's a great question, too. As, I, as I've said, it was hatred and love in North Vietnam and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam that helped to mobilize children and youth for the cause of the party and for the cause of the government. But... 
when you're a small child, you don't really understand what is communism, what is socialism. For that matter, the majority of Vietnamese in the North and in the South did not know anything about communism or socialism when uh, the war started. In the North, it was drilled into their heads shortly after what communism, what socialism was about, at least in theory. But in the South, very little people actually cared about the difference between capitalism and socialism. As any normal people, they wanted just to have their peaceful life and to be able to feed their families. And in the North, however, for mobilization, the government and Ho Chi Minh, they decided to tie the younger generation to the cause of the party and to the cause of the government through the figure of Ho Chi Minh. He became the human and humane embodiment of the cause of the party and of the government, because for children it's much easier to relate to a person. And he became uncle of the children and of the country. And not just an uncle, but in Vietnamese language, the word Bak, that was how he was referred to by all Vietnamese. It's the older brother of the father. So he is not only an uncle, he's a father figure who even children's parents would have to obey. And they started an emulation movement of obedient nephews and nieces of Uncle Ho. And uh, there is no doubt that Ho Chi Minh was a very charismatic person and he could project himself as a very kind old man. He spent a lot of time on propagating and demonstrating his love for children. I am not saying that he did not love children, but uh, the demonstrations were very, very public, definitely in order to create and establish this connection between uh, children and youth and himself to eventually connect and tie them to the party and to the government. Ho Chi Minh claimed that he had never been married, that his life and his uh, marriages to Vietnam and to Vietnamese revolution, it is not true. He uh, definitely was married and he had liaisons, but it was always hidden deep under the blankets so that no one would know about it exactly because he wanted to create this image. And uh, in fact, this is what my next book is about. This is what I'm working on in Nantes. I'm writing a book about Ho Chi Minh's cult of personality and uh, his own participation in this cult. I actually think that he was the most active builder of his own cult, more than any other leader that we know he contributed to his own cult because definitely Stalin and Mao and uh, other uh, leaders, they had their own cults uh, of personality. But I don't think that they worked as hard on their own cults as Ho Chi Minh did. But the fact was that most of the children in Vietnam, or so it seems, they really loved Ho Chi Minh and they felt that they are very connected to him. Through the texts that were taught to them, I understand that actually Ho Chi Minh was to be considered the closest person or closer than uh, their parents. I was very relieved when I asked uh, a lot of Vietnamese who were growing up in Vietnam whether they really loved Ho Chi Minh more than they loved their parents. I was relieved to hear that it wasn't the case that they still loved their parents more. But it was a very important part because otherwise, how would you connect I grew up in the Soviet Union, and we were all uh, pioneers and first octobrists, octobrists, 
and then pioneers and then members of Komsomol connected through Lenin. Each organization was bearing the name of Lenin. Vietnam copied it exactly from the Soviet Union. It just instead of uh, Octoberist, because this was named after the Great October Socialist Revolution in 1917 in Russia, in uh, Vietnam it was Augustus, the word that I invented to uh, reflect it, but uh, this is the children of the August. Why August? Because the August Revolution in 1945 was the establishment of uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. And uh, the pioneer organization was the same, and uh, there was parallel counterpart of Komsomol in Vietnam too. But the difference was when I was growing up, Lenin was removed from us very, very far away because he died in 1924. I was growing up in the 19 in the 1970s, so it's it was 50 years. And he was not anything special for us. And uh, by the time I was growing up, it was definitely not uh, Stalin's years. And we were already uh, started being cynical. It was not the case in Vietnam because Ho Chi Minh was alive. And, uh, okay, he died in 1969. By 1975, it was only six years so it was still very fresh in the memory of those children who were growing up. What the Democratic Republic of Vietnam uh, was doing is creating this emotional connection through this uh, leader of the family, Vietnamese family, and uh, each personal family, each single family in Vietnam. In the South, there was nothing comparable to Uncle Ho because of the differences in the political system. There were frequent changes, especially at the beginning of the governments, and each new government was trying to establish its legitimacy through criticizing the previous government. So one day you have to... I see a leader in the person who next day will be overthrown and killed and denounced. So there was no any single figure in South Vietnam that could really rival the status and the position of Ho Chi Minh. Not to mention that it would be again something that is against the very reason of existence of South Vietnam to create the similar cult of personality as North Vietnam created for Ho Chi Minh. So why then to fight if there are so many similarities? The South tried to distinguish itself as much as possible, and it created the problems for the South, but this is actually, I think, that North, with its hatred and with its love, mobilizing uh, young people for the war. They were very successful, but they did not teach them any critical abilities, and they did not prepare them for peaceful construction, for peaceful existence. And this is one of the reasons that Vietnam had so many problems after the war. Uh, The South, on the contrary, was preparing people for peaceful life, but they could not get there without preparing them for war. Yeah, another, I guess, another thing, particularly for people in the West, I think, these days, when they, Ho Chi Minh seems to kind of symbolise, you know, Vietnamese anti-colonial nationalism, but, but your book shows that Vietnamese nationalism was also a central ideological element in education in the South. I was wondering if you could tell us about the content of Vietnamese nationalism in the in South Vietnam, and perhaps you know, how it differed from, from, from the North. Yes, it's uh, very interesting because when we talk about nationalism in North Vietnam, it's a very complicated issue. There is no doubt that Ho Chi Minh wanted the best for his country, and he wanted his country free from France, from uh, any colonial regime. but. He also wanted his country to be socialist. 
And he already in the 1920s, 1926, he writes a letter to the Soviet Union asking to accept a group of uh, young children uh, to study in the Soviet Union, to raise them as communists. And there are a lot of uh, materials that really support how communist-oriented he was. He also worked uh, for Comintern, the Communist International, and it is very clear that his idea of freedom for his country was connected to socialism and communism. Socialism and communism, they don't really see nationalism as the core of their teaching, because this is the class that is the center of socialist and uh, communism. Proletarians all over the world unite. And this is what the South was saying, that actually communists in the North, they are not nationalists. They are closer to other countries of the socialist camp than they are close to interests of Vietnamese. They are just a part of this uh, socialist and communist uh, agenda. In the South, nationalism, they saw the main danger not even in communism, but in losing Vietnamese-ness for of their children. Because with the advent of Western culture that was brought in huge part by Americans, they they were afraid that their children would become hippies, that they would only listen to Western music, that they would read this terrible Western literature that might destroy their morals. So for many intellectuals, it was a huge question of what to do, how to keep vietnamese And actually, before I started researching, I didn't know that there were a lot of hippies in Vietnam and adults were very concerned how come hippies, because they the strange clothes that don't have anything in common with Vietnamese tradition, this music, this flowers, they had the special glasses with flower symbols, their pants. So it was terrible for them. Some other people were saying, just let them express themselves because there is nothing bad about being hippies. In the United States, hippies, they are against the war. So it's nothing bad there. And so some of the people in Vietnam argued that. And for them, it was not as dangerous, but there were incessant debates about how to keep vietnamese with American troops on the ground that corrupted Vietnamese style of life, Vietnamese morality in many ways, that destroyed the infrastructure of the country. It wasn't only the war, but also definitely the presence of Americans in the cities attracted a lot of people there. And a lot of Vietnamese started to work uh, for the establishments where Americans would spend their time, be it bars or restaurants or brothels. It was definitely something very new and dangerous. But it was also allowing different reflections, uh, different styles of life, and different views on youth culture, uh, how it would function in the society. It's very interesting that another aspect of the difference between the North and the South was the versions of history that the youth were taught. Whereas it seems the, the version of history taught in the North was very, you know, controlled and quite stable. Official historical narratives in the South were much, seemed to be much more variable and, and changeable. The, as I said, uh, Vietnam was divided into two parts before the French came. And in South Vietnamese narratives, definitely they give better reflection of the Southern regime. And in the North, they give better reflection of the Northern regime. But the main difference comes when the discussion enters the period after 1945. 
because we see a we see a continuity in North Vietnam, in the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Uh, it's very clear the August Revolution, 1945, the Communist Party leads. Ho Chi Minh is great. He is at the helm. He leads the country. The country succeeds. Uh, we will soon expel Americans, unite the country, and build socialism in both countries. There is no really any disruption there. Uh, for that reason, there were very little, if any, changes in leadership in North Vietnam. Actually, there were very few changes in leadership until the 1980s. But in the South, it was until 1967, at least, there were constant changes because one government was overthrowing another government. And in 1963, the first president of Vietnam, with the consent of the United States, was overthrown. But it started a season of coups. Coup d'etat, one government overthrowing the other, quite a regular succession, and each government was trying to trash the previous government, uh, the first president of the Republic of Vietnam, who was killed in 1963, he was uh, no angel and he made a lot of uh, mistakes, but he was the first president and he had to work and govern the country in very difficult conditions with a lot of religious currents competing for power. There were also pro-communist forces, communist forces, all challenging his power. And at the same time, he had to try to develop some style of democracy. Was he a Democrat? No, but he was much more democratic than Ho Chi Minh or Ho Chi Minh's government in the North. So when he was overthrown and killed, the next government started to portray him as the most terrible thing that ever happened to South Vietnam. And I assume that it was very confusing for young people because during the time of Ngo Dinh Diem's uh, government, he was highly praised in the press, in the textbooks, if there was a cult of personality comparable to that of Ho Chi Minh in North Vietnam, in South Vietnam, it would be the time of Ngo Dinh Diem. It did not go as far, but the children were taught to love Ngo Dinh Diem. And when he was overthrown, I think a lot of children had to ask themselves, how reliable is the information that we are taught. In this sense, it was much easier for the children and youth in the North because there was this continuity. There was no any major shift during the war. There were people who were not in agreement with the government. We just didn't hear about them because the government could suppress them and definitely controlled all the media the way that South Vietnam could never do. Yeah, I one of the things that struck me about the book was if you look at the relationship between the two governments and, and, and their youth populations, in retrospect, it seems that, that the North was much more successful in, in mobilising its youth to support and pursue its you know, political objective of defeating the South and unifying the country under a socialist regime. But you, you seem to warn against this view of, of uh, how effective the North was. I, I think that the North was very successful as presenting itself as a monolith during the war. Whether it was as complete monolith as they want to present now, I'm not sure. But this was the representation. This was why people around the world rallied, because... Entire North Vietnam wanted this. Ho Chi Minh was the representation of entire Vietnam. Whether it was true or not, but this was the image that they created. But for so many years, North Vietnamese fought. And it's very difficult to fight. And the cost of this fighting is enormous. 
But fighting and mobilizing people for fighting, it doesn't teach people any critical thinking. It doesn't teach them the necessary tools that would help them to build a successful, civil, peaceful society. And after the war, when uh, Vietnam, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, had to rely on the Soviet Union, they didn't have a very good example to emulate either because uh, the Soviet Union didn't, couldn't build its own economy. It was just uh, supporting its client states very faithfully uh, as long as it could. But the Soviet reproduction of knowledge and the economic systems, they were very flawed too. And this is what eventually led to the demise of the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, Vietnam started to change its own ways. And the new leadership came. This is when the new leadership came. Because the people who led Vietnam during the war and for a decade after the war, they were professional revolutionaries. They were very heroic in fighting against the French and then for the unification of the country and socialization of the country. But they didn't have any education that would allow them to build a country. They knew how to lead the country in fighting. They had very difficult schooling in uh, Vietnamese prisons, terrible uh, prisons uh, under the French. They were trained to be guerrillas. They were trained to conduct clandestine activities, but they didn't know how to build a successful economy. And they didn't train their youth that could build a successful economy. At the end of your book, you write that one of the ironies of the North's victory over the South and the unification of the country is that with you know Vietnam's opening up to the outside world from the late 1980s, the youth have become more materialistic, apolitical and less obedient to the party line, which is kind of similar to the youth of the defeated Republic of Vietnam. And now the Vietnamese state patronises commemoration of the, you know, the ancient Hung kings and even Confucianism, which is another aspect of the Southern model. Is this irony acknowledged in Vietnam today? Uh, it's very hard to say because Confucianism, it disappeared in North Vietnam because in a sense what the communists introduced, it was a replacement of Confucianism. They needed this space for introducing the cult of Ho Chi Minh and the cult of the party. So it took the place of Confucianism. Now, with all the problems in uh, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, there is much more political freedom and there is much more information, even if it doesn't come from the official sources and from the textbooks. Young people get much more cynical in the sense that it was it is much more like we were in the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s. We knew that we had to play the game because the party was in power. And this is the same in Vietnam now. I think the majority of young people, they feel that this is kind of a game and there are rules and you have to follow the rules to have your life. But the economy moves in a very different direction and it's a much more capitalist economy than socialist economy and people can earn money a lot of people can earn much more than they ever could before beginning of the 1990s for example the situation started to change in 1985 1986 in vietnam so now it's it's very very different but the party continues to proclaim that socialism is their way of life, communism is their goal, 
as long as it doesn't really clash with aspirations uh, with uh, the people. Some people are very willing to go with it because what can they do if they're allowed to, if they have a chance to earn a good life? Uh, okay, so the party is there and um, the party is uh, the authority. And the party uses Ho Chi Minh very, very widely but not as widely as they would like, I guess, because now, for example, books are published commercially too, and even state publishers, they don't want to publish books and then throw them away. No one buys books about Ho Chi Minh or by Ho Chi Minh in the same numbers as they used to be. So if during the war, and it was the war with very difficult conditions for publishing, there were hundreds of thousands or even 200,000 copies. Now, usually books of uh, about Ho Chi Minh or by Ho Chi Minh, there are only 1,000 copies, sometimes 500 copies, sometimes 1,500 copies. But the party creates for, for itself. I just always feel that they don't want to publicly admit that uh, Ho Chi Minh is not as popular as he used to be because he is still their human hope and humane hope of the connection between the people and the party. Because I, I think the party knows that it would have to transform, it would have to change it is very difficult for the party, I admit, because they uh, are neighbors of China and we know what is going on in China and Vietnam definitely has to pay a lot of attention to China and what's going on there. And they cannot be free agents in a sense that some other countries are because China is very much in control over the territory. But things are definitely changing. I'm wondering if we can perhaps just zoom out a little bit in conclusion. Your book, it seems to be quite sympathetic to the, I guess in the end, the doomed attempts of the, the South to create a viable state, while at the same time it's quite critical of the totalitarian ambitions of the North. I'm wondering how you feel that your book is situated within sort of Vietnamese history, which, you know, it's sort of divided up sometimes uh, between these groups, the Orthodox school or the revisionist school or the Vietnam-centric school. Do you see your your work situated into one of these schools or, or not? I don't think that it's in one of these schools, but I definitely think that South Vietnam is very much understudied and very much maligned more than it deserved. And it's mainly because after the war and during the war, a lot of Americans were against the war, and uh, understandably so, because this is what democracy is about, right? We, we, We just talked about it. People should be able to express their view and stand their views and stand for their views. And as some Americans went to fight in Vietnam, other Americans were protesting against that war, which is what the war was about, about this freedom of expression. And this is what South Vietnam wanted to build a more democratic, a more open society. So I do feel that in this way, I, I'm trying to contribute to this debate to this re-studying South Vietnam, because unfortunately, uh, the United States is so, it's not unfortunate, Uh, unfortunate is not that. The United States is so dominant in many respects that the majority of works created about the war in Vietnam, it's about American experience. Then it started to develop to include the communists uh, against whom it was alleged that Americans fought. And South Vietnam, who was the ally of the United States, was completely practically excluded from the narrative. So it was like Americans were fighting against communists. 
And in the United States, people very seldom talk about South Vietnam. And if they do, scholars mainly uh, they talk about uh, how terrible the regime was, never really comparing it to what was going on in North Vietnam. I'm not saying that South Vietnamese governments and the regimes they were all rosy and successful, but they were much, much more democratic. And I think it is very important for us to bring up. It is also very important for us to recognize that the war was not just the war between the United States and the communists. It was, first of all, it was a civil war between the North and the South. And the South played as an important role as the United States was. The United States cannot always take all the attention and all the responsibility. We need to better understand history, including American history, and certainly Vietnamese history. We need to look at all the sides. So the South Vietnamese government of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam doesn't really change much in this respect. For example, my previous book was the translation of the memoirs of the massacre that took place in 1968 during the Tet Offensive. The massacre took place in the city of Hue, and it was committed by communist and pro-communist forces. The government of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam still does not want to do or say anything to recognize it. And they commemorate their victory in the Tet Offensive, but they never mention what happened in Hue, where thousands of civilians were massacred. And the book is not published in Vietnam. It's not, it's not discussed there as not discussed the event. Moreover, now that there is a book that was published in maybe 1992, there were proceedings of a conference at Cornell University. It's a very interesting book. It's called Essays into Vietnamese Past, and Vietnamese now wanted to translate it. But in order to publish it, all the essays that were included in the book that would concern in any way Ho Chi Minh were to be removed from the book. They could not be published. And it's uh, 30 years after the book was published. So they're still very much afraid of tarnishing their image. And for me, it was very important not to try to tarnish the image of the communist Vietnam, of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, because I have enormous, I can say admiration, but I have enormous respect for their will to fight. I don't have much respect for their will to subdue any dissent or any other views. But I understand how it was difficult for them and for South Vietnam to live and fight for so many years. And I mourn with them all the victims of the war on both sides and the role that the United States played and its involvement because it was executed, I think, in a terrible way. And South Vietnamese suffered as much as North Vietnamese, but it was not definitely the war between Americans and the communists only, but it was the civil war between South and North Vietnam, and both sides must be recognized. So I saw as my main goal to bring both sides together in the way it had not been done before. And sadly, our, our time is up. Olga Draw, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your book, Making Two Vietnams, War and Youth Identities, 1965 to 1975, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 
As always, thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books uh, that deal with a similar theme, like Chris Gosher's Vietnam, A New History, or Max Hastings' Vietnam, An Epic Tragedy, 1945 to 1975. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes.